Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, Ben. Glad you're here, Matt. Yep, yep. I yeah. am here. Here I am, Ben. Thanks, you guys. Ready to do this? Are you? I am. Just <laughs> barely. To, I was just telling together my for like kids, a moment. My kids who just got home from school. I was saying, "Hey, I need to record something real quick. Uh, that'd be great if you could close my door." So anyway, whew, didn't quite well, get it all in uh, before the recording <laughs> dropped. That's right. <laughs> yeah. It's all right. It's all right. Uh, New Year's is coming, y'all. Yeah. Yep. It like, is coming. Do you do New Year's resolutions? I used to, but I I don't really. I don't. I know, Christy, that's verboten to you. I know you're like kind of like, you love, this is like your time of year where you get like it, a, a journal and you get your goals, you get your mod podge and you- Listen, I turn, I turn all my hangers the opposite way. This is another thing I do. What? Like you know how like you hang normal, you have to hang it backwards. I hang all my clothes backwards where like the Why? hanger part is like the wrong way. And okay. then I know every time I wear something that I hang it the correct way. Okay. And then within 6 months I know like what I wear and what I don't wear. Oh my and gosh. then I like donate the stuff. You guys, the 3 in me, the Enneagram 3 in me loves right. New Year's and all New these Year's. all yeah. the things, you know? Yeah, I love that. Um, uh, that's, actually, but that's I don't a really make good you declutter your closet. Thing. That's yeah. a brilliant. So that's a brilliant way of doing it. Yeah, you don't have to like think. When did I wear this last? Right, you'll just know. Yep. I'd that love our, our listeners if you want to email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Tell us if you have like a New Year's tradition or yearly, you know, project strategy plan, like hangers. You know, 
Like hangers. Yeah. Hangers, yeah. One of the things I'm doing differently in the New Year's is I'm wearing some pretty dope Colorado socks. (laughs) See that? Look at those. Last week's week's episode. uh, Listen to last week's episode if you want to know where Matt got Colorado Mm -hmm. socks. Mm -hmm. I know. Those are looking Mm -hmm. awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Christy. Um, Yeah. I don't don't do New Year's resolutions, though, guys. I I used to. Yeah, you do something Um, that I want to hear. I want to hear you talk more about. You pray for like a word for the year. A word for the yeah. year. What if? Yeah, what? I think I was in high school and my pastor uh, challenged our whole congregation mm-hmm. and the new year to pick a word and to focus on that word throughout the whole year. So to read books about it, to memorize scripture about it, to have meaningful dialogue and conversations about that word, and ultimately for that word to, you know, become part of your life and, and embodied. Um, in your mm-hmm. actions and reactions. And so, um, yeah, so I start thinking in December, like, what's my new word going to be? And you guys, I don't have a word yet. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, but well, this December's past year I did. Over. I know. Yeah. I got a couple more days. The, the, this past year I did the word tov, which is a Hebrew word, mm-hmm. yeah. um, means good or goodness. And um, it's mm-hmm. always fascinating to me things that I learn, how God opens up my eyes to to that word throughout the year. It's often yeah. not what I anticipate. And so. Could, could um, you say a bit? Of the, I think that's an interesting, I, mm-hmm. I've heard about this practice. I've never done it myself, but I've heard about this practice, but I've wondered what the effect is. So yeah. like what, how, how has it affected your life to have the word Tove for the last 12 months be your word for the year? Yeah. Um, I mean, practically it'd be probably interesting asking my kids and my, and my husband, because they would <laughs> right. probably be the one to, to be able to answer better. But, um, mm. I think that studying this word um, has grown in me uh, uh, attitude of gratitude, uh, where <laughs> I I see goodness, I see um, mm. around me, and that has kind of grown my heart, swelled my heart for how thankful I am for these yeah. things and for who God is and or what He created or who He created or whatever. So, mm. um, so it sounds I like your honestly, word. Your word becomes like a lens through which you frame the year and you sort of... Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, so the I'm word really, wouldn't yeah, be I'm like... thankful. It wouldn't be like sebum or something. <laughs> Gingivitis. <laughs> no. Right. No. That'd be weird. No, yeah. Okay. No. It's well, like a it's like a character trait for the spirit. Or virtue know? or... So. Yeah. Yeah. What, what yeah. have some other passwords been? Do you remember? Yeah, uh, I had patience one year, which was like funny. Mm. Don't ever pray for patience. Like right. God gives yeah, you lots of opportunity. That. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it was like a podcast guest we talked to. They were they were like, you know, uh, Lord, I don't want to develop patience. I just want to have it. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so patience, um, joy was one year. Mm. Um, mm. Beloved, me mm. understanding. Uh, that I'm his beloved was a, a big mm. year and probably yeah. uh, within the last 10 years, I was probably the most impactful. Um, mm. Just, I had believed a lot of lies about that, um, not oh, yeah. being his beloved. And yeah. so really living under the umbrella that God delights in me mm. rather than living for a, his smile, you know, yeah. to make mm-hmm. him happy. So anyway. Um, so, yeah. So we actually had an, um, a podcast listener email uh, about this question because I think you mentioned it a while back. 
Yeah. And they, they, they wondered what that process looked like. Like what, what is the, is there a process for it or like what, like what do you actually do to come up with this word? Like what, what kinds of questions do you ask? Is there certain kind of time you spend? Like, what do you actually do to. Yeah. I think, you know, in December I start to think about like, huh, what, where, where am I seeing uh, a need for truth? Really? Mm. Um, I often ask my husband, I often ask my dear closest friends, Mm. um, like, you know, if they have any insight or wisdom as to maybe something I could concentrate on um, mm. or a place where I could be encouraged. And um, mm. sometimes they have some really good insight and some mm-hmm. wisdom that I don't see. Um, so I ask that. Um, and often it's like between a couple words and sometimes it's just me praying through it and then just deciding like, okay, yeah. here it is. Um, and yeah. then I do ask people once I once a word is formed and hey, this is what I'm going to focus on for the next year. I do ask people about books that are about that thing. Right. Um, and yeah. so this past year, I read different books on goodness and hmm. um, Scott McKnight's yeah. Tove, you know, Journal right. Tove, yeah. and all, yeah. all those things. So um, and then I do a word study, you know, big old where is this word found in the scriptures and okay. um, read, study, memorize. So, yeah, yeah. that's uh, yeah, yeah. So it sounds like there's a there's a sense in which this word, <laughs> right? Not like gingivitis, uh, but this word Just is clarifying. unto. Yeah, that's helpful, Matt. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, this word is unto growth. Yeah, it's absolutely. unto like what what do I want to grow into or what do yeah. I want to learn more about? And so, yeah, because uh, you know, yeah. New Year's resolutions. I mean. If it's February 1 and you're still doing your news resolution, that's pretty yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah. right. uh, but yeah. this is more of, it's it's not a sprint, it's a, a marathon mentality. Yeah. Uh, this is something yeah. I want to develop and to be developed in me. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah. And it feels a little less, I don't know, resolutions in my mind are a little bit more, <clears throat> I don't know, like I, the impression I sometimes get, uh, I'm sure there's better ways of doing it than this, but the impression I sometimes get is like, I'm going to like try real hard to like, you know, accomplish this goal. I don't know. It feels a little strivy sometimes to me. Yeah. And often it's like based on our efforts. Like, right. 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 I'm going to lose uh, 20 pounds. Yeah. And this is more is like a prayer of God, would you develop me? Yeah. Yeah. You know, (laughs) would you be doing this? I don't know. So that's good. It's a word maybe that focuses your attention so that God can Hmm. accomplish something in your life. Yeah. Rather than I'm going to like pull myself up by my bootstraps and try right. to fix things in my life. Right. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. I like that, Christy. Yeah, Christy, I don't know many people. I don't know if I know any other person in my life who lives as intentional as you do. And I think this is an expression of that. Like you, you every day seek to orient and order your life with purpose. And it's one of the, one of the ways that you radiate Christ and teach me. And I benefit greatly from it. Take strong encouragement, uh, sometimes admonition, from uh, how, like, that's good, though. I need that admonition. But anyway, this is, I think, is an expression of how God's made you and how you image Christ to other people. So thank you. Thanks for sharing it with us. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Well, hey, I'm excited about our podcast today because it's it's you, Matt Tebby. (laughs) We we interviewed Matt Tebby. We did. Yeah. 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 Um, We had, we, we asked you about like what are the five things you've learned in ministry in the last twenty years. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And of course there's more than five, but you were able to bring it to hear the mm-hmm. five big things and yeah. to hear them, to talk about them, to ask questions about them. And um, I think it's, it, I, it's a good practice actually, I think for anybody in ministry to, to think back the last 20 years, like what, what have I learned and where have I grown and what, what was important in those, those years. So um, you did that and then we were able to ask you about it. So it's, yep. I'm glad you did it. Thank Thanks. you. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, part of a little bit of a, a series we're going to continue to ask uh, various leaders um, who've been in ministry, not just 20 years, but, you know, 10 years or five years or mm-hmm. 15 years or whatever. Um, just what are the, the uh, some important things um, that each of these leaders uh, have learned? So we thought, uh, we thought we'd uh, let Matt be the guinea pig and have him go first and see if it was a good idea. Yeah, I've been waiting I a think long it time. Was. We had a great... It was to, come to on share this podcast. what you've learned. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Long time um, host, first time guest. Yeah. I, uh, when I sat down to write these things out, I'm just just shocked at the things I I didn't know 20 years ago. Right? Which yeah. let's yeah. Uh, and I, I I do actually wonder what what in 20 years will I be shocked I didn't know. Now mm. you know. So yeah. Anyway. Well. Yeah. Yep. Well, let's, let's get into it then. Let's do it. Here we go. Last podcast before, I think it is. Yeah, this is the last podcast we'll release in 2021. So listeners, we'll see you on the other side. We'll see you in 2022. We'll see what 2022 has for us. We're uh, sort of excited about 2022. Yeah. Yeah, happy Pandemic has me feeling questionable. Sounds like the future. Yeah, I think it it is the future. Okay. Yeah. It's going to be the year that we head into for sure. To be categorical. Right, well, see in the future. All right. Well, here we go. Yep. See in the future, everybody. Matt, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. It is great to be here. I'm a long time, long time listener. Well, you know, <laughs> long time uh, listener, long time producer. That's long right. Time interviewer. That's right. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm here with Matt and Ben, um, hey. but today we're doing something fun where we um, we're going to ask you some questions, Matt, um, mm-hmm. and dive in to the last 20 years of your life. Mm, and I'm yep. glad that you're willing for us to do this. Yeah, we've been you know we've been doing this now, just asking people the things they've they've learned. Uh, throughout their mm-hmm. time in ministry, and it's been really fruitful. Some yeah. mm-hmm. some amazing insights. So, I uh, hope to keep up. Well, right. you have been in ministry for twenty years, um, and I don't think all of our listeners know the different contexts in which you've been loving yeah. on people and <laughs> loving God. So, tell us yeah. about what those things are. Yeah. Um, well, I came to Christ in college, and about after. Sp- I don't know, six weeks of basically making a decision to follow Jesus, I was leading a Bible study. So I, I, I kind of helped co-lead this college ministry for two years in college. And then I was a worship leader right out of college at a Presbyterian church. And after about a year or so there, we're leading worship, I uh, also got hired. Um, I was on the worship team. I, I didn't lead worship solo, but I was on a worship team. And then I got hired as the junior high youth pastor. <clears throat> so I did junior high youth ministry for about three years. And then took off for seminary, and while I was in seminary, became a pastor at a local um, Christian Missionary Alliance church. So sort of went from the 
broadly Reformed tradition to more of the Wesleyan holiness tradition. Um, and I was a co-pastor there with three people in like a pretty small church plant. And then I took a call, a job at a larger non-denominational church as a pastor of spiritual formation and discipleship. Then I worked in a, with a parachurch ministry for a bit, about a year. And then um, now we're all caught up. Now that's when Ben and I and Ben Harbin started Gravity Leadership. And and then I'm uh, currently a co-pastor, co-priest, co-rector at the Table Church. So I've been doing that for the past six years or so. Yeah. And we met. We met at the church outside of Chicago. That's where we, where, uh, we went to church together. You were my pastor. and um, But in the midst of all of this, right, in the midst of the last 20 years, there have been a lot of highs and lows. There's been a lot of stuff. There's been lives transformed in real joy and then some real tragic times and deep sorrow. And so really this this podcast is meant to be for you just, just to share what are the things that you've been – you know, what you've wrestled with and how you've learned different things and, and maybe how it's impacted your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm excited to dive into that. Yeah. So we've got five things here, Matt, <clears throat> that you told us that you've learned mm-hmm. in your 20 plus years of ministry. And the first thing is this, that God is love. It's amazing to me that it took you that long to figure it out. Are you proud of me? <laughs> <laughs> I did. No, jo- joking. What do you, what do you mean uh, by saying that that's something that you've learned that God is love? Yeah. Well, I think I, um, I heard that I, I grew up Roman Catholic, and um, there's a lot of good things about growing up Roman Catholic, um, and I know I heard that. I think we sang that um, every week. Went to a weekly mass at my elementary school, and went to church every Sunday, so at least two masses a week, and VBS things like that. My mom uh, and my dad told me that, and I think that when I started following Jesus in earnest in college, that uh, I just sort of assumed that. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, of course, right? Um, But I think in the 20 plus years that I've been in ministry, I, my attention and my focus has had to be like ruthlessly brought back to this very profound, simple truth that, that God is love. Um. Yeah, you want me to say more about it? <laughs> yeah, tell us more. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so I think I think the way I would just categorize how I operated the first half of ministry was that God is in control. Mm. Uh, I've got a neighbor who is um, who knows I'm a, a priest and will come over and chat with me from time to time, uh, and we were talking about the pandemic, um, and how our church was doing after the pandemic. And my neighbor said, well, how are you doing? Uh, no, he said, what, are you, what have you been learning through this pandemic? Other than the big lesson we're always learning, that God is in control. Mm. Um, <laughs> about a year prior to that, my neighbor was telling, the same neighbor with his wife was telling me about a woman who was driving home from work um, in the fog in the morning, third shift, and she struck and and killed her best friend's daughter waiting for the bus. Mm-hmm. And as the as the wife told me this story, uh, I'm just trying to like 
it's somebody they knew. Somebody they knew, um, uh, daughter had died. Um, that um, the the wife, let's call her Jill. She's telling me the story, and her husband, my neighbor, let's call him Bill. Bill and Jill. Uh, <laughs> Bill. Bill interrupts her and says, "In times like this, it's comforting to know that God is in control." And I looked at him like it was like a record scratch. And Jill, his his wife, goes, Well, that's not as comforting as just saying that this is awful. Yeah. <laughs> I think that I was like my neighbor Bill for about 10 to 15 years. Like to me, the Christian life was about um understanding uh that everything that happens is is sort of God's will in some way that I I had and my trust was centered in this supreme confidence that um, whatever happened is because God wanted it to. Uh, and there was a comfort in that, right? There's a comfort in in not having, not feeling powerless or not feeling like I had questions in the face of suffering or evil or or things you couldn't understand or a, a you know. A woman just trying to get home from work, uh, killing one of her friend's daughters. Um, but I think something shifted for me about 10 or 15 years ago. It's interesting because I think um, maybe if I could be so bold as to say when Christians kind of I don't want to judge his heart or motive, but feels like flippantly throws that around. It actually maybe diminishes the way that people would feel and experience God's love. Mm. And so the idea of that shift changing from God is in control, which I'm guessing you believe that still, right? I mean, yeah, there's, I think I just understand it differently. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and the impact, the power that yeah. love has over control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder, Matt, if you could talk about what what changed for you and what you mean by understanding that differently, because that it is a phrase that we don't use much, right? I, I actually don't say that. I've never heard you say that. You know, in, a, in the long time that I've met you in the sense of saying like, oh, God's in control. But by that, we don't necessarily mean that God is out of control, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's not what we're saying. So, um, so what do you, like, what shifted for you and how do you see, how do you see God's sovereignty or how do you see sovereignty um, playing out? You know, how, how is this not just like love me? God is love, which means God's out of control. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I'm glad you introduced that word sovereign. I think oftentimes sovereign is a synonym for control. Right. But I think the way that we see God choosing to be sovereign over and over and over again in scripture is by is through his reign of love by empowering people real agents to make real choices that have real impact and so for instance um there's there's instances where god get god gets what god wants right but there are so many points of the story where god chooses not to get what god wants mhm and so I, I think just to say that God always gets what God wants, or God is in control, it's not true enough. It mm. doesn't include everything. 
-hmm. It eliminates, I think, the diversity and complexity of um, of who God is and how God operates in love. I mean, I think this is this is the point of the book of Job. One of them is that it's not sufficient to draw straight lines from what happens to what God wants. It's not sufficient to think we can know the mind of God in these in these ways. Um, I think this came home to me when I was, uh, I was trying to, I didn't have to do any CPE hours for my seminary degree, meaning I didn't have to go to the hospital, visit sick people, and, and sit with dead people uh, for my seminary degree, mm-hmm. which at the time I was relieved, I'll be honest, I, I was relieved of that, but now it was a travesty. I consider it like a travesty. So I had to figure out how to go to a hospital and be with sick and hurting people basically on my own. Yeah. And I remember I remember um, having a really hard time being with people in the midst of suffering because I found myself trying to explain it. Mm. I found myself trying to explain it, and the ways I, I found myself explaining it, I could register on with people. It didn't help them. And so I remember talking to somebody who saw God the way I did, you know, like God is in control and everything that happens, for, God wants to happen. And I said, well, how do you, how do you like talk to people who just lost their daughter to leukemia or uh, the, their husband or wife just, com- just committed adultery? Like, how do you, yeah. and this person said to me, oh, well, you don't, you don't tell them that in that moment. That's not pastoral. I remember thinking, I don't. I don't want to have a theology that I have to hide from people when they most need theology. Right. <laughs> I don't yeah. I I don't want to not tell people the truth because the truth would be like actually hurtful to them. So maybe I need to reevaluate how do I conceive of this because I I actually do want to go deeper into who God is in the midst of suffering, not withhold who God is yeah. in the midst of suffering. So that for me was huge. Yeah. So what do you what do you say? Like I'm just gonna go there. Yeah. You're at, you're at the hospital. Someone just passed away. You're with their spouse or their kid or whatever. And you're not saying God is sovereign, but I'm I am interested. There are listeners who are listening to this podcast right now who are hurting. Yeah, totally. What do you say to them in the midst of their suffering? Yeah, this is this is very hard to do because I. Because I think that in each moment, each moment is precious, and each moment needs, I think, a particular word of grace and truth. Mm. It's so hard to comfort suffering in the abstract, yeah. because mm-hmm. it never happens abstractly. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so I let me back up a th- couple w- steps, Christy, and then get at your question again. Yeah. Because I came to see God is sovereign. God is in charge, however we want to conceive that. But the way that he rules, the way that God rules is through love, not control. So God is holding things together, drawing people to himself, empowering people to become agents who can make real choices that have real consequences. And somehow in the midst of all of that, God's love is in the center, is sovereign, as revealed in Jesus, and that love is holding things together and moving us towards a, a goal, a future, a new creation that's assured. So mm-hmm. there are so many stories that I think we get to write, and, and, and God won't 
stop us. Like there's so there's so many things we can do that God isn't uh, controlling us like robots or zapping us to make us okay. do things, right? right. Um, but somehow, some way, the the billions and billions and billions of choices that each of us will make in our life, multiplied by the billions of people who've led. God is able in his love and his sovereign love to hold, to wrap his arms around all of that and carry it towards new creation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So God is sovereign. God is, in, God is in charge, but love rules differently than control. Yes. Yeah. Love, love rules and love rules differently than control does. Um, I mean, I see, yeah, I could, I think there's so many different examples with my kids. Uh, Every day I have to choose, am I going to demand obedience because of my power or am I going to suffer not getting what I want now so that I can love my kids and they can grow in wisdom? Mm -hmm. Every day, multiple times a day. Yeah. Right? Um, So, yeah. I mean, I think what Jesus does in the face of evil and suffering is he gets sad and he gets mad. I think I think what I did for the first 15 years of my Christian life was I got um I pontificated and I explained. Mm-hmm. And and Jesus Jesus doesn't do that. And the scriptures actually resist explaining exhaustively, like, this is why we wrestle with theodicy and the problem of evil, the problem of suffering. They resist easy explanations for that. So I think, I think uh, weeping, crying, getting, getting mad, telling the truth about evil, suffering, death, yeah. being, entering into that, bearing it, co-suffering, yes. co-laboring, bearing, bearing that, having solidarity, joining with them, crying, mm-hmm. shutting up. This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com slash academy. I love that this is your first one that God is love because I do believe that it's uh, it's it's been transformative in your life. Yeah. But it is foundational also. It changed that perception changes everything. Yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Um so God is love. Yes. The second one you said is that the kingdom of God um uh, challenges much of what America's built on. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about <laughs> tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in the eighties. I'm an eighties kid. And in the eighties it was really clear to me who the bad guys were and who the good guys were, right? Yeah. Uh, the bad guys were the uh, the Russians. Sorry Russian. if you're from uh, the, the former Soviet the, Union. The communist Russians. Yeah, the commies. They were the bad yeah, guys. Yeah. And, uh, bad guys. you know, America was the good guys. 
Like we were the we were the good guys. Um, I and I remember I have this distinct memory of commercials that ran during the 1984 Olympics. And like I had a sticker I got in a McDonald's uh, Happy Meal I stuck on my headboard, and my mom was livid because she couldn't scrape it off the wood. Oh, and I'm, yeah. I remember, I remember all these commercials, and I remember thinking, I can't wait to see America dominate, you know, the Russians. Uh, mm. Close to this time was when the movie Rocky Four came out. Oh yeah, when Rocky fought, uh, what was that guy's name? Igor Drago. 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 Right. Uh, no, don't feel like I have that right. I'm gonna look it up. Some something. That, like some, in the something snow, a bitch carrying yeah. the, the big log, and he's like, yes. Yeah. So Rocky's like <laughs> like running around in the snow, eating mm-hmm. elk meat. You know, living and 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 Drago's in some sort of lab, getting injected with steroids. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Like it's this, mm-hmm. but it's the only movie I've ever been in where the entire theater which was probably 100, 150 people, gave a standing ovation when Rocky beat the Russian. Oh, yeah. Like, I've never seen a theater do that, ever. Yes. I've been to at least three movies since then. It was was Ivan Drago. Ivan Drago. He was a Soviet-Russian character, played by a Swedish actor. Oh, look at that guy. He's got range. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and I think it was when I became a Christian, I think I believed in general, that America was the city on the hill. Mm-hmm. Like America was not New Jerusalem, but wow, really close. And uh, God I, shed his grace on thee. Right. Know? Like, yeah. Yeah. And I, I um, it's hard to talk about this because it's such a definitive shift for me in my mind mm-hmm. and my heart and my, and the way I live. But I, it's also hard to talk about it because, um, in, in our discourse, our public discourse, you either love America or you hate America. That's those are those are purported to be your options, right? Those are the only yeah. options you get, right? Yeah. You either are a patriot or you're a dissident. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and I don't or, feel or even I, worse. Or even worse, who knows? Um, and I don't feel like I hate America. I feel like I love the place I live. And when you love um, an entity, and you can see what's wrong with it. You want it to get better. Yeah. If I hated America and I saw what was wrong with it, I'd want it to get worse. Yeah. And I don't want it to get worse. So, yeah, that's the second one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There's a lot there that we could dive into, but um, let's go. To, let's go to number three. Okay. Tra- trauma exists and must be reckoned with. Yeah. That's your third thing you've learned. Yeah. Yeah, 20 years ago. Yeah, 20 years ago, I think I had heard of PTSD, but it was a synonym for shell-shocked, and it Mm. was only soldiers returning from, for instance, the Iraq War. It was a very obvious and concrete and specific problem that certain people had when they went through just awful things, right? Right, right. And I think think that um, even when... I went through a fairly traumatic experience in 2015. Even when that happened, I was unaware that what was happening to me was traumatizing. Um, and then it wasn't until like 2018. I'm sitting in a I'm sitting in a counselor office with my therapist, um, and he's putting me through a battery of tests, and I take a test for trauma, a PTSD test. 
And he said, um, hey, I, I want just to let you know that um, you have PTSD. And immediately I was like, what? Really? He's like, yeah. He said, uh, typically for normal uh, Americans who aren't in active combat, you have PTSD if you have a score of 41 or more. Now, active, active combat um, military, it's 48 or, 48 or more. And he said, mm-hmm. you're at a 53. Mm. And I remember thinking, how did I not know this? Mm. How could I not see this? And so it's been literally, um, I mean, I, I was reading about trauma before this. I, I mm. knew about trauma maybe since 2016, 2015. But it's literally in the last six years that I've even had language to name um, that trauma can happen to people who um, aren't in a bunker hiding from bullets. Hmm. That it can happen in our, our our relationships. It can happen from our parents. It can happen from coworkers or bosses or in even in churches, hmm. right? Um, and so that's been a huge thing to learn. Not only how my trauma impacts me and the ways in which I get triggered, but also learning to bring awareness and compassion to the many, many people around me who are dealing with unrecognized, unprocessed trauma. Yeah. Matt, I'm wondering if you, we've talked offline about this of, you know, often people keep trauma in their body. Uh, if you've read books like The Body Keeps Score or, mm-hmm. you know, the, different things like that. Um, and you, you've you learned about that. There's been some counseling around that. Can you just talk a little bit, unpack that a little bit about how y- y- understanding, kind of reclaiming your body um, after trauma? Yeah. Um, I we're, we're just learning so much about how trauma is, finds purchase in somebody's body. So one of the things we're learning is that um, it the severity of the activating event matters less than how your body interprets and stores that event. So, um, so for instance, someone can be in a car crash and not experience trauma from that. And somebody else in the same car can go through that same car crash and their body stores the pain and the fear, the sort of the coming on of your limbic system, your fight or flight, your body stores that away and it becomes kind of this ghost in the machine. Mm-hmm. It becomes a new, it's like a new code that's in your operating system. And so it comes online when you uh, n- more frequently and in, in inopportune times, whenever your body senses any cues that relate to sort of that activating event. So that's one thing that we've learned. Uh, the second thing, you know, and there's there's a bunch of really good books out there about this. One is um, um, My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Minikim. Mm-hmm. Um, but trauma actually gets passed down in our, in our DNA. Researchers tell us now that uh, trauma can be passed on from parent to child through, through like just... Um, just through like uh, biology, through DNA, for up to 14 generations. Yeah. And so Rosma Menachem makes this point that, um, and Bessel van der Kolk, you mentioned the body keeps the score, makes this point too, that right now living in our bodies is, is trauma that 
people experienced hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And yeah. Bessel, Bessel van der Kolk points out on on Being Podcast with Krista Tippett, just to drop a recommendation in there, um, that um, he says that, Bessel says that almost every culture has developed liturgies and rituals to work trauma out of the body. So music, rhythmic drumming, mm -hmm. dancing, things like this help sort of uh, help the body metabolize trauma is how they're talking about it. Mm -hmm. he, he, and Bessel says, except for Western and Northern Europeans, huh. they never developed any cultural ways of processing it. And he said, except for one thing, Western and Northern Europeans drank alcohol. To numb it. Yeah. yeah. We anesthetized it rather than metabolized it. it. Metabolized it. Yeah. yeah. So he, he calls our culture a post-alcoholic culture, mm. uh, like basically Western white people. And I, I feel that. I think I look back on my parents and my family of origin, my extended family, and I see <laughs> Resmo Minikem and Bessel also say that basically a lot of things we think of as, quote, culture mm -hmm. are actually... Uh, generational trauma responses, right? Mm. Uh, so, so one of the things is like an, an over-functioning, uh, somebody in the family who over-functions and tries to take responsibility for everybody. So codependency maybe is, is part of this matrix of artifacts of what a generational trauma yeah. culture creates. And none of this, I didn't know any of this stuff. I mean, I am even, I'm telling you, I'm learning this stuff. I'm just beginning to learn. Mm -hmm. And I think back on all the conversations I had with people where I didn't know they were traumatized. I just thought they were jerks. <laughs> or, or where they came at me and I didn't have the awareness to notice my own uh, trauma mm -hmm. come online in my body. And I just reacted out of it. Mm -hmm. And then you have two triggered people who are hurling moral injury at each other. Yeah. And yeah, I and I didn't have any we, access to that. It's interesting that you bring this up because I just I think we as a people, and this is a big generalization, but maybe we as Americans, we we don't know how to we don't know how to deal with trauma. We don't know how to like reckon with it. Mm -hmm. And I just learned this week that um there are animals, animals don't keep trauma in their body. Have you heard this? No, tell me about it. Okay, I I'm not like sourcing it. So if you're like a researcher, do not quote me. But I did learn, I read this article and it was basically saying that, um, you know, zebras or antelope or whatever, if they get caught by a lion and they like, maybe they play dead or they pretend like they're dead or, um, or something happens where like the lion will drop and not actually eat the other animal, that the zebra or the antelope will literally shake their entire body like very fervently to like shake out all of that, um, the trauma of, of mm -hmm. being almost attacked by a lion. Mm -hmm. And we as humans, like we don't know how to do that. We don't, mm -hmm. we don't know how to like process that and reckon with that and also understand or have an awareness of if we don't do that, if we ignore it and stuff it, it's going to come out sideways at yes. some point. Yeah. Yep. So. Yeah, I think Resmo Monachem talks about that as well. Like well, noticing how animals do this, they they sort of vigorously shake. Yeah. You know all that kind of stuff, and so yeah. it's it's remarkable to think, you know, sort of the <clears throat> the I'm thinking about church cultures as well, because one of the things Monachem talks about is the 
African-American church culture, which a lot of the, the traditional ways that they do church are also ways of metabolizing trauma. You know, the humming, the swaying, the, the dancing, the, the singing, um, all, all of it uh, tends to be a way to metabolize trauma. And you think about some of the, the tropes for Western white church people, right? The, the frozen chosen and, yeah. you know, all of this kind of thing. And make, I don't know, it just makes me wonder if there's something besides, you know, just pure culture, so to speak, that's at work that makes us resist like moving our bodies when we worship or yeah. like actually participating in, in those embodied ways um, that there's some trauma signal that we're protecting or hiding from. Right. Which, yeah. um, go ahead. Go ahead, Matt. Did you have something to say? Well, I, I was just going to ask you, Matt, um, you, you know, you mentioned that soldiers have PTSD and that you had a high score yeah. on this PTSD test, but like what, um, what kinds of things besides like being in a war or being attacked by a lion yeah. or getting in a car crash, like what, like what kinds of things can traumatize us? That yeah. might be helpful for people to hear. I don't whatever you're willing to share from your own life as well. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to share about this. Um, so again, um, it, our bodies interpret external stimuli differently. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it's tempting because we, we live with crushing amounts of shame it's tempting to try to uh, have a hierarchy of of what's traumatizing and what isn't, and then right. to evaluate or judge ourselves compared to somebody else, right? Right, yeah. So, for instance, I've I've never been shot at, watched a friend die, heard a bomb go off right next to me. Like, that. Right. none of that's ever happened to me. And mm-hmm. it's easy for me to, like, sort of downplay or dismiss the things that did happen to me, that my body decided to store as trauma. And right. it's just, it's a, it's a, um, it doesn't help. So I just want to give us yeah. permission as we listen. Right. It doesn't help. But a Even couple if you don't think yours is as bad as somebody else's. Exactly. Yeah. If it's your body a... recognizes it as trauma. Yeah. You, you it do is. that too. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So uh just a few variety of things. I I um I grew up in a home with uh a parent that had a violent temper. And they used anger and fear to control us. So um that's traumatizing for a little for a little person to feel scared and in danger by the person that they're connected to for security. Yeah. You know? Anytime the, the person you rely on to take care of you, you fear for your you fear for your well being with yeah. them. Yeah. Um, that's traumatizing. Can be. Can be traumatizing. I was attacked by a dog when I was 14, leaving my uncle's house. Uh 16 puncture wounds. Uh, was terrifying. My sister and my mom were screaming. Um, I was locked in a locker in a YMCA bathroom for what felt like an hour and a half with the lights out, screaming to get out when I was probably five or six. Mm. Um, I was just talking to my counselor about that last week, actually. Mm. Um, You know, I was abused as a kid um, in a bathroom. Um, I, I had been, I've worked for people that have tried to manipulate and exploit me, um, lied to me, gaslight, and then um, I've tried to use me and um, just felt really weird as it was happening and then felt Mm -hmm. like violated, betrayed. Um, So those are some of the traumatizing events in my life, the things that, oh, (laughs) I'll I'll just share one more. I was probably eight or nine. I was playing with two of my best friends in the neighborhood and um, 
all of a sudden one of the friends took off his belt and tied me to the swing set and whipped me. And um, he, he and my friend were laughing the whole time. And I think he was trying to scare me, but I, but I was not having fun. Mm. And I was, I felt terrorized. Um, there's more, there are more things. And I don't know how to like suss out, well, memory one was 80% of the trauma and memory seven was, <laughs> yeah. no, it's, a, it's this constellation of things where yeah. um, I think about these things without wanting to. Yeah. Right. They come, yeah. they come to me unbidden. Yeah. And, and when I'm in similar, when I, and these memories live in my body, they show up and, and they show up in relationships and they yeah. show up in social spaces without, without my welcome. Yeah. My understanding too, is they can <clears throat> compound, uh, like complex trauma can yeah. compound upon itself. Yeah. So because you had a, a pre, uh, you, because you had an event that was traumatizing before you tend to go through like difficult events, like in a re-traumatizing way. Whereas somebody without that sort of experience of trauma mm. might be able to shake it off. Um, but that can sometimes, so it's, it's like, well, how, you know, like your experience of trauma three weeks ago might be compounded by your experience of trauma three years ago. Yes. Um, and that's, that's, I think it just highlights the importance of what you're saying to just pay attention to what are these things that come up unbidden? Uh, is there trauma involved? Cause you know, my body stored it as trauma and you know, that like, again, that's, we don't need to morally rank those things, but right. um, we just need to pay attention to them so that we can metabolize them. Right. And I think yeah. this is, I mean, this is related to this. So I'll just mention it because it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of a subset of this, of this yeah. third one. But um, there's a lot of, a lot of the pathology of, of being, having PTSD comes out in ways that, that are morally compromising for me. So what do you mean by that? I, so yeah, I, res I respond in anger when I feel threatened uh, because it's a trauma response. Right. But then I've, I've become angry and I've hurt someone's feelings and now I feel awful because I've sinned against somebody. Mm. Um, and I, I want to say that I don't, I'm not trying to excuse the anger, but I'm saying a number of ways of getting to know myself better, including PTSD, including ADHD, a lot of the the neurodivergency connected with ADHD. A lot of the a lot of the sources of shame and guilt in my life have, like, I come by them honestly, mm -hmm. you know. And a lot of other people, the things that they do that are uh, maybe they they uh, they tend to just um, morally judge them. They come by that honestly too. And so I'm, I guess what I'm learning to do is bring some compassion towards mm -hmm. what I would describe as woundedness and brokenness in my life. Mm -hmm. And in that compassion, learn to hold those parts of me that need healed and the things I do because I need healed, yeah. to hold that in, you know, the graciousness and power of God's love. That's good. good. That's really good. It actually goes along with what your fourth thing is. Uh, well, I guess in my life it goes along. There has been trauma in mm. my life from power um, yeah. being misused in my life where there's yes. a differentiation of power. And you have seen power at work in lots of different areas. That's something that you've learned in the last 20 years. Tell us 
Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, a few of the stories, by the way, uh, the, the reason I was in a locker is because I was, we were playing a game with some peers and they left me in that locker and they left the bathroom. You know, my friends tying me up and whipping me, um, uh, an older parent, um, like towering over me and scaring me, you know, um, a, a, a dog that was stronger than me, overpowering me and physically hurting me. So yes, misuses of power can be traumatizing. Um, I think, I think 20 years ago, um, I was kind of a, a well-meaning white guy that had no idea the kind of privilege and status my gender and my race and my uh, ethnicity and my, and my relative intelligence afforded me in the world and the lack of status, position, and power other people had because of their race, their gender, their body, etc. cetera. Mm. And so, um, yeah, I mean, early on in ministry, I, I just did not, I, I, I did, I thought of, I thought of racism as a real problem and I thought of the way to solve it was to, was to treat everyone the same, to be essentially colorblind and to, um, and to basically not use racist language. Um, but I noticed that like, uh, not seeing color didn't solve the power inequalities that race was invented to create. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. it, it made me, com- it made me complicit in ways I was un- unable to see. Yeah. Um, same thing with, same thing with women, uh, same thing with me being an able-bodied person. I, I, I've had I've been told by people who've been hurt by the ways I've used power unintentionally. I've learned from them that I do have power, that it matters the way I steward and carry it. And unless I can see power, I will have no idea how to love people well Mm. and to agitate for justice in particular concrete ways. Mm. You know, it's fascinating about this one is I read, you sent this to us of, of these five things and I read this one and I, I was like, no, 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 no. This isn't one of his five things. <laughs> and I think it's because my experience of you, Matt, yeah, yeah. you have been one of the most empowering men in my life. Mm. Going back to when we were, you know, church in Chicago and as a first woman, you asked me to preach there and as a first woman to do that. And that was because of your invitation to me. Um, And so I guess what I want to say is like, I believe there has been all of this work and and you have been growing. Um, But I also want to, I guess, just speak out and say, you also have been this model, whether it's social media or this podcast or me personally in my life, of empowering people. You, you, it's like you're learning it and you're not just like, oh, yeah, I need to learn that and move on. But <laughs> you're you're in process and it's affecting other people's lives yes. for the good. Yes. And I, thank you for that. Thanks, Christy. I received that and I I will not argue with you about it. <laughs> I, and I, I guess, I guess to say all of these things I've learned, um, I'm, I'm, 
I, I hope I'm not giving the impression that that it's as binary as it is, right? But there, there's a yeah. learning you along. Learned it a, in one day. Yeah, I didn't learn yeah. it one day. I also didn't start from being like I hated women and I hated <laughs> right. brown people. Um, no, I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Christy, um, for instance, I I remember counseling women who had what I see now as emotionally manipulative husbands. I counseled women to do Matthew 18 with them. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And I, I wasn't wicked. I was foolish. Right. And my foolishness hurt people because I couldn't see how, why you had to reckon with power there. Yeah. I couldn't see it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, I could tell other stories like that where I, I simp my frames and filters for accessing human relationships, human systems, human structures were insufficient to deal with the complexities at hand. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So everything you're saying is true, and I've learned so much, yeah. and I'm learning so much. Yeah, it strikes me too that all of these, a lot of these are connected, right? Um, that a lot of the power dynamics, I mean, some of the stuff we didn't we didn't talk about when we talked about America, you know, is a lot of the power dynamics are what keeps uh, racism and, you know, white supremacy alive and active in America is not, you know, the KKK. It's not like, you know, no. we have a KKK government. No, 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 it's, no, no, no. it's a lot of these hidden power dynamics that... Uh, some people can't see. Some people don't want to see. Yeah. Um, but it's those things that keep these systems and structures of inequality in place. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, you know. So, for instance, just to pick up on that theme, Martin Luther King is often quoted by people mm-hmm. defending America. Right. So right. Martin Luther yeah. King used the rhetorical strategy of calling America to live up to its founding documents: "All right. men are created equal." Right, right. Yep. Um, and I think rhetorically in the 1960s, Martin Luther King is—it's a pretty—it's a pretty wise strategy. It's pretty smart. I think he's um, being shrewd in doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you know, 20 years ago, I'm like, yes, all America needs to do is live up to its founding documents, <laughs> and then we'll be okay. Right. Well, um, no, I, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the so the the founding documents actually exclude 90% of the population at the time. Right. It actually forbids non-landowning, non-white, non-male persons from having any vote. Yeah. And so all men are created equal excludes women. Right. It excludes native persons. It excludes black people. It ex- it excludes any poor white man mm-hmm. who doesn't own land. So like yeah. 10% of the population, all men are created equal, it was for 10% of the people. Yeah. Right? Now, now that's telling the truth about who we are. Yeah. You don't have to be a hater to tell the truth. Yeah. You actually can just want to tell the truth. Yeah. Um, but that's how power works. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. like the Constitution was written, among other reasons, to legitimize a certain... Uh, uh, assertion of power, a certain mm-hmm. grab for power. Yep. And yep. and I think we, I don't think we lose anything by owning that. And no. I think we have a lot to gain from it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it strikes me that if you really do want it to change, the first step is you have to tell the truth about it. You, you have, have to tell to the truth tell about the what's, truth. what is, you know, 
And and well, let's change this. We can change this. Yeah. But here's what it has been. So yeah. I, I just had a crazy thought. So you know uh-huh. the, uh, the the twelve steps of AAA. Mm-hmm. You have to mm-hmm. you have to kind of have to tell the truth. Like the first step is right. basically you admit you're powerless. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting that Bessel van der Kolk calls our culture a post-alcoholic culture because mm. we refuse to do the first step of AA. Yeah. We refuse yeah. to just tell the truth. Well, people about are who afraid are. of the truth. Yeah. At mm. least I would say this is another generalization, but in the last eighteen months, I feel like there have been people that have kind of pushed against. They don't want to hear it. No. And they don't want to believe it. And they're they're saying liar liar pants on fire, and I'm like, what are you? What, what in the world? Well, this is another. You bring up sort of. Um, there, there's a there's a move afoot to um, parents are protesting that children are made to feel uncomfortable about their race in schools. Mm. So parents mm. and there's headlines, right? How how young is too young to talk about race with your children? <laughs> I think I think 15 years ago, I wouldn't be able to see the power at work there. Right. Now I can. Now when now when I read that headline, because of my uh, some black and brown friends who've helped me see this, I can read that headline and say, "Oh, you're talking about white kids. Right. You should say white kids. <laughs> yeah. How young is too young for yeah. talk to white kids about race? Because you're not talking about black and brown children. Right. You black Their and brown survival children depends on being depends on talking about it. Totally." Yeah. There's never a time in their life they don't remember most of them right. having had mm-hmm. to talk about race, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's a white, forgive me, this is, this is whiteness at work, that we demand not to feel uncomfortable for being white when, when black and brown people spend their existence feeling, their entire existence feeling uncomfortable for being black and brown. Yeah. In fact, the whole category of black was invented to make them feel uncomfortable to be marginalized to yeah. be exploited and profited yeah. off of yeah so so i think you're i mean i don't know if you're referencing that christy but this is something now that i feel like i'm capable of beginning to conceive of how power works there mm-hmm. and in 20 years ago i just couldn't yeah um all right well let's bring this to a close we got four things god is love the kingdom of God challenges a lot that America was built on. Trauma exists and needs to be reckoned with. We need to see how power is at work, uh, or you've learned to see how power is at work. Uh, the fifth thing here that you have listed is that being good is more important than being right. Or you've shifted from yeah. being right as a goal to being good as a goal. Say more about that. Yeah. I I was drawn... So when I became a Christian, I had this... I had like 20 years of um, catechesis in the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, I I knew all these Bible stories, and I absorbed all this God information, but I really wanted to know what was true, mm-hmm. right? Like, give me yeah. the straight dope. I just want to know it. <laughs> I want to know it. Yeah. And so I really focused for the first five to 10 years of my Christian life on being right. Mm-hmm. I needed to know whether I was a superlapsarian or an infralapsarian. Mm-hmm. I needed to know if I was a uh, pre-mill mid-tribber or a pre-mill post-tribber or what I needed to know these things. Right. Um, and so I spent a lot of time trying to find out a, what was right and B who were the right people that I could align with. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I think that it's more important to be virtuous than right. Now, that doesn't mean being right's wrong. 
<laughs> and that doesn't mean I don't care about what's true. I mean, it's talked about like, you know, telling the truth about our country. Yeah. Um, but I think that what I noticed when I focused on being right and figuring out where to draw the lines, who's out, who's in, mm-hmm. I noticed that I became allergic to repentance. Mm. Yeah, because if being right is super important, then being wrong is deeply threatening. Oh, deeply. Yeah. So I, I have to I have to complete I have to totally um I have to be so certain, so sure, so impervious to correction. Yeah. Otherwise, the entire edifice of what I'm basing my life on crumbles. Mm-hmm. So I became yeah. brittle and rigid. Uh, repentance was uh, awful, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I was distant, detached from people I deemed wrong. Like I wasn't mm-hmm. able to actually eat and drink with sinners. Yeah. Um, it made it hard to learn. This is it. It made it hard to learn something I didn't already know. I could keep rehearsing and keep keep reminding myself of all the stuff I was sure of, mm-hmm. but I built what that did is it like made me sort of um, impervious to any significant change. Yeah, yeah, you know, which and uh, uh, so it sounds like that that change, <clears throat> the the level of change that happens to us when we repent, that became less threatening, but it also sounds like it became more important for you in a sense, because like repenting when you're wrong, the goal is to like, the goal is to stop being wrong, you know? Um, And so, (laughs) you know, in one sense, you know, depending on what your definition of right is in one sense, it's, it's a new way of being right, but it's a, maybe a better way of being right. Or maybe that's where that category good comes in for you. Virtuous. Yeah. Yeah. For me, if, if the goal then is, so this is another way of just maybe um, tying this up with love. If the goal is to become, saturated uh and and held together by the love of God and Jesus and the mm. and how that love is evidenced in my love for others yeah then then whether or not I'm right and you're wrong Ben mm. matters less than how do I love you yeah. And the only conceptualization I had for love when rightness was the main thing was, well, I got to fix you. Convince. Yeah. I got to convince you and fix yeah. you that you're wrong. Right. And now um, I, I think I'm more and more free to mm. just be with you and for you, to hold in my heart God's good and God's desire for you, whatever that may be. And as soon as I get a sense or a hint of God's grace at work in your life, which could be you calling something bad, bad. Could be you calling something good, good. Could be mm-hmm. the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Could be that sin makes you miserable and sick and angry. Whatever it is that gives me an indication that the image of God is is shining in you, then I'm an advocate for it. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. I, yeah. I bless it yeah. with you, or I curse it with you. Mm-hmm. And uh, that frees me up to love you rather than to make you in my own image so that you yeah. and I can be uh, together against all the other people. Yeah. Yeah, so the solidarity is rooted in love rather than uh, belief or like ha- us mm-hmm. having the same set of, uh, you know, sort of propositions that we all assent to. Yeah. That there's a solidarity uh, in love. And this, you know, it comes back to what you were saying about how God's love is sovereign, I think, as well, in the sense that we're trusting then, uh, we're being patient with the way that God works in people's lives instead of 
impatiently demanding that they believe the same things that we believe. Yes. Right? Yes. I mean, this is... This is a huge thing that since I've decided to, yeah, I think the fruit of the Spirit, which uh, I don't see as a list of attributes that have different qualities, I see as one attribute that has, that that bears, I think the Spirit bears fruit in a loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, goodness uh, way of being. So I think all these are sort of... Um, Ways of describing one fruit rather than a bunch of fruits, if that makes sense. So yeah. this patient, peaceful, kind way of being mm-hmm. uh, has become way more important to me 20 years into ministry than knowing how to preach that passage good Yeah, and making sure that you know I'm right about it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, well, Matt, thanks for sharing this stuff with us. Appreciate it. Yeah, being with you today in this uh, in this way. Yeah, a lot of times you and I are talking with somebody else, and Christy, we're we're talking with somebody else about stuff. But yeah. today we get to talk talk amongst ourselves. Well, I heard good things about this podcast. I'm glad I finally got a chance to. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you could finally be a guest. <laughs> uh, and can I just say something too? Like, I want to be clear about sure. this. There's five things. Um, maybe you should say I'm learning. I, I don't. I don't feel any good. of these. Like, yeah, yeah. None of these. I feel like. I just have maybe 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 the grapes from the promised land of them have been brought back and I've tasted them. Like that's mm-hmm. where I feel like I'm at with this stuff. Yeah. So um, I'm in the process of learning this. I mean, a lot of the learning happens on this podcast every week where we bring people yeah. on who know more about these things than I do. Yes. yes. And these are just things that if I could like, if I could invite 25 year old Matt up on my lap, <laughs> that I would just I would just want to, him to know. Be open to moving towards these things because yeah. they will, uh, they will uh, save you. Yes, they will save you. All right, man. Thanks for sharing it with us. Yep, yep. See you next time. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.